This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reform Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reform views based on the Word of God and the Reform Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. We read from God's Word this morning in a few different places. In the New Testament, first and first John. First passage we'll read is first John chapter one. In the beginning of chapter two. First John one verses one through two, verse two. And then we'll turn to the book of Ephesians in the first couple of chapters there. We'll read two verses. All these passages that we read from Scripture are part of the foundation of the Heidelberg Catechism, especially the explanation of Lord's Day 18 regarding the ascension of Jesus Christ, and particularly the benefits or the advantage of our ascended Lord and Savior. We read first of all 1 John 1, 1, starting at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie. And do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all our sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We read that far in 1 John. Now we turn to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 and 2. Ephesians 1 and 2. Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14. Here we find another 
benefit of the ascension of Christ. 1 verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. And then just in the next chapter, we read Ephesians 2. We read verses 1 through 10. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace... Are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We read that far in God's holy and inspired word. Now we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 18, pages 10 and 11. Based on the Scriptures, we have this Catechism and its explanation of our confession, He ascended into heaven. How dost thou understand these words, He ascended into heaven? that Christ in the sight of His disciples was taken up from earth into heaven, and that He continues there for our interest until He comes again to judge the quick or the living and the dead. Is not Christ then with us even to the end of the world as He hath promised? Christ is very man and very God. With respect to His human nature, He is no more on earth. But with respect to His Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. But if His human nature is not present wherever His Godhead is, are not then these two natures in Christ separated from one another? Not at all. For since the Godhead is illimitable and omnipresent, it must necessarily follow that the same is beyond the limits of the human nature He assumed, and yet is nevertheless in this human nature and remains personally united to it. Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven? 
First, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he is the head will also take up to himself us, his members. And thirdly, that he sends us his spirit as an earnest by whose power we seek the things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God and not things on the earth. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 18 brings up to us an an important history lesson, which we briefly explain. The history lesson is not the main point of Lord's Day 18, but it is an important point to remember regarding the background of the catechism. The church history lesson that goes along with Lord's Day 18 is a controversy between the Reformed and the Lutheran churches early on after the Great Reformation. Back in the 1500s when the Catechism was written, Frederick III, who had converted to the Reformed religion, the ruler of the state of Palatinate, commissioned the writing of the Catechism, especially to distinguish the Reformed churches, not only from the Roman Catholic churches, but also from the Lutheran churches. And the error that he wanted to distinguish the Lutheran church, uh, to point out in the Lutheran churches and distinguish the Reformed churches from was the Lutheran error regarding the Lord's Supper. You see, Martin Luther had taught many that at the Lord's Supper, at communion that we celebrate in church, Christ was not only really present, but physically present with his body and his blood in and with the bread and wine that we partake. Martin Luther, though orthodox in many ways, and particularly strong regarding the truth of justification by faith alone, was not perfect, and he did hold to this error. But what happened after Martin Luther died was that his followers in the Lutheran church carried his error to bring the church to more errors, other errors, The followers carried his error to its logical conclusions. So that if the physical body of Christ is present in the Lord's Supper, it was deduced by Luther's followers that the body of Jesus Christ, his human nature, becomes omnipresent. They call it ubiquitous. Think about it, if his body and blood have to be present in heaven as well as in the Lord's Supper. And if his body and blood have to be physically present in every Lord's Supper across the globe at the same time, then his body has to be omnipresent. And that was the argument that Lutherans after Luther concluded. The ubiquity or the omnipresence of Christ's body, his human nature. And so the Reformed responded. The Reformed pointed out that the Lutherans, after Luther, were teaching an error called Eutychianism, an old heresy that had argued earlier on before Luther that the human nature was changed, which makes Christ's human nature no longer truly human nature, presenting many other problems in his work. Because if 
a human body becomes omnipresent, then it takes on an incommunicable divine attribute. But just as seriously, the Reform pointed out not only that heresy in Lutheran theology, but the Reform pointed out this simple truth that the Lutheran error denied, connected to Lord's Day 18. It denied the ascension, the real ascension of Jesus Christ. If the physical body of Christ remains here in the Lord's Supper and omnipresent, then Christ did not change location in His ascension. He did not leave this earth and go to heaven as the Bible tells us. That's what the Lutheran error logically brings them to. A denial of the real ascension of Jesus Christ is recorded in Scripture. And so, in the Catechism, in Lord's, or question answer 46, we find the Catechism insisting against that Lutheran error that Christ, in the sight of His disciples, was taken up from earth into heaven. Notice a clear change of location of His human nature. And that He continues there. He's not omnipresent, but He continues there with His physical human nature for our interest until He comes again to judge the living and the dead. In questions 47 and 48, we find some sophistry, some Lutheran philosophical arguments against the Reformed position and then answers to those arguments. First, the question, very briefly here, is not Christ then with us even to the end of the world as He has promised? So they use, the Lutherans do, the promise of Christ that He is going to be with us even unto the end of the world. And the Lutherans argue that if Christ promises that, He must be physically here with us even unto the end of the world. And the answer summed up is, He's not physically present, and yet He is really present according to His divine nature and by His Holy Spirit. And then question 48 is where we get into some complex argument of the Lutherans using some philosophy, responding to the last answer of the reform. The Lutherans contend that if it is argued that that Christ's divine nature is omnipresent, but His human nature is only in heaven, then there is a separation of human and divine. That's the Lutheran argument against the Reformed position. And the answer insists that just because His divine nature is omnipresent and His human nature is only in heaven does not make a separation. But there is maintained a unity of human and divine, even though His human nature has ascended. But all that is as far as we're going to go into the debate between the Lutherans and the Reform. It's sufficient to say that the implication of the Lutheran position is that there is a compromise of the doctrine or the truth of Christ's ascension. And the ascension we see this morning of Jesus Christ 
is necessary for benefits, for saving advantages, as the catechism puts it. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus Christ did not become omnipresent according to his human nature, but he very really changed location from earth to heaven in order to give unto us many benefits. Three in particular, we focus in on Lord's Day 18, question and answer 49 in particular. Three benefits that exalt Christ and show us the greatness of His work in ascending into heaven. Consider with me the advantage of Christ's ascension. Following the lines, you can see the lines, the three points of question and answer 49, the three benefits there. First benefit is that He is our advocate. Second, He is a pledge. And finally, there is an earnest of the Holy Spirit given us. An advocate, a pledge, and then an earnest. One of the most neglected and underestimated truths of Christ's saving work is His, His work of ascension, His exaltation after His resurrection to God's right hand. And so, to help us value His work of ascension also, along with all of His other works of salvation, we consider the benefits of the ascension. These are not the only benefits, but they are some of the most important benefits or advantages of Christ's ascension. The first one being, He is our advocate, the Catechism says, in the presence of His Father in heaven. The Scripture that we read that particularly proves this point is in 1 John 2, verse 2. 1 John 2, verse 2 that we read, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The key word is advocate, and we must understand that word. It's a precious truth, and if you don't understand what advocate means, you miss out on some of the most comforting truths of His work as ascended Lord. An advocate is someone in a legal setting who is a defense attorney, a defense attorney representing another in court in order to speak on his or her behalf before the judge. That is what an advocate means. Now in our day and age, sometimes that word advocate is used loosely to speak of someone who comes beside you and speaks for you, generally speaking, and, and cares for you. But advocate here particularly refers to someone who stands with you and for you as your representative in the legal setting, the court, and speaks on your behalf before the judge. So children, you can understand this. Let's say you have been accused of a crime. Perhaps you've been accused of murder. You've been accused of abuse. You've been accused of adultery. You've been accused of some sort of wickedness in this world. And you're brought to court. The police brings you to jail and then they bring you before the judge. And someone, either yourself or someone else, has to stand up before this judge 
an official person who wants to hear your side of the story. Someone has to argue your case. Someone has to speak for you, represent you well, clearly. To argue either that you didn't commit the crimes or maybe you committed some of the crimes but not all the crimes and to make clear what the truth is. And you, perhaps as a child or someone who doesn't know the law as well or doesn't know how to speak as well, clearly before the judge. And you know fear and, and, and nervousness will affect your words and the clarity of your thinking. You need an advocate. You need someone to stand for you, understanding your case, understanding the laws of the land, and knowing how to speak to the judge clearly. That's an advocate. Jesus is the advocate of His people. 1 John 2, verse 2 says, describing Him importantly this way, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and the propitiation, literally the satisfaction for our sins. We need that advocate more than any earthly defense attorney here below. In fact, some need to not hire that defense attorney here below and confess all their sins and lean wholly on the heavenly advocate and attorney. While we as people on this earth, however, before we get to heaven, live here below, we are sinners. And our sins are crimes, you see, against the God of heaven, the judge of heaven. All sins of many kinds, sins that we don't even recognize all the time. And these sins plague our consciences to make us feel shameful, guilty, and even fearful. We hear accusations from Satan. We hear accusations within our consciences. We hear accusations from other people against us. And though some of those accusations are not true, now most of them are. They're sinners. And we need, we need someone to come before the judge of heaven and to plead our case. We need someone to plead our case as our advocate. To speak on our behalf clearly, without fear, in truth. And so we need Jesus Christ, the righteous, to speak in heaven. And the advantage of the ascension is that Jesus Christ, our Savior, has not only died for our sins. He is not only risen again, but He has ascended into heaven so that day by day He pleads on our behalf. The God of heaven above, the righteous judge, our Father, to forgive us for all the many sins we continue to commit day by day. 
Now listen, what, what do you think that advocate says? What does he say on behalf of his people as our representative? You need to know what he says. Negatively, first of all, Jesus, the advocate, the righteous, does not say. He does not say this. That, that person at Hope PRC, that man, that woman, that child, he hasn't sinned personally. They, they, haven't, they haven't sinned. He doesn't say that of himself or herself, he's righteous. They're good. No crimes. You might say that, and you know what 1 John says in 1 John 1, verse 9 and 10? You're lying. And you make God a liar if you say you have no sins. And Jesus Christ is not going to say that. For He is not lying. So He doesn't say that His people down there have no sins, but positively, Jesus the righteous does say, judge Him as though He has no sin. Cleanse Him. Forgive Him as though He has no sin. Why? What's the basis? What's the reason for that? Not because they are righteous, not because they're going to improve, but the basis is my righteousness. That's why the text says in 1 John 1 or 2, verse 2, Jesus Christ the righteous. On the basis of my righteousness, he says, on the basis of my perfect work, because I have obeyed all the commandments already and finished it, because I have been the propitiation, verse 3 says, the satisfaction of wrath. I have suffered completely all the punishment due unto them. For that reason, as that basis, judge them as righteous. Declare to them, even now, that they are pardoned, they are forgiven in the sight of heaven. And God the Father answers the plea of Jesus the Advocate. He doesn't keep forgiveness and justification in His mind up there in heaven. But in answer to the plea of our Advocate, He declares that righteousness to your consciences. You need that. Day by day as you feel the guilt and shame of your sin, God answers the plea of our Advocate in heaven. And He declares, He assures us, you are forgiven. You are righteous in My sight. Freely for the sake of Christ's merits. He does that by working faith. By faith alone, we know that judgment of God. Without His ascension, we don't have that advocate. Without His ascension, we sin and we sin and we sin again through our lives and we wonder, we stand in doubt. Does He forgive that that sin? These sins too? There's so many. They're so great. They're so besetting. I keep doing it. 
the ascension, you see, of Jesus Christ as our advocate is for the assurance of our souls. That Jesus Christ, the righteous, pleads our case. And for the sake of Jesus Christ, God declares to us, your sins are forgiven. Before I move on to the next advantage related to this work of advocacy, is what we call intercession. Intercession. Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven to be our intercessor. And the word of intercession is really the, the word that is broader, while the word advocate is narrower. The word of advocate is someone who prays to God on our behalf, particularly for our forgiveness. The work of intercession includes more than that. Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven to be our intercessor, to plead for our sakes many other benefits besides forgiveness. The text that speaks of that intercession more generally is Hebrews 4, 14-16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have this high priest, Jesus Christ the intercessor, who has ascended into heaven, into the throne room of God, to pray for us, not only for forgiveness, as we have already considered, but for all things that we need. To help us understand the need for that, the necessity of that, think about your prayer life. How's that going? Daily we're called to pray. Without ceasing, we're called to pray. We call upon God's name in prayer. It's the chief part of thanks, we know that. And we know that God gives His grace and Holy Spirit only to those who pray. We feel the obligation of prayer, and we ought to feel the obligation of prayer. But one of the reasons that we find difficult to pray is that we are afraid. That sums up one of the main reasons that we are inhibited in prayer. Yes, another reason is laziness, pure laziness, and we must repent of that. But another reason is fear. We're afraid that since we haven't been as regular and as faithful in prayer in the past, as sincere perhaps, we're so distracted, we haven't done our devotions as well, we're afraid that, that now we start praying, God won't hear us. We're afraid that we've sinned too greatly. We've sinned sinned too much that God won't receive us. We are afraid that our prayers themselves are so sinful. Our prayers themselves are so weak. We have a hard time concentrating. Our prayers are so incomplete. We feel like we haven't added enough to our prayers. And and we know that as we stutter through our prayers, we, we taint our prayers with sins. Will God receive us? We're afraid He won't. 
We're afraid He won't even understand us. Will He understand our feelings? When others don't understand us, and often we don't understand our feelings ourselves, the ascension of Jesus Christ is such that we don't have to fear these things. None of them. Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven as our intercessor and He removes all those fears. But right now in heaven, as our ascended Lord, He prays for us. Before we pray, He is praying. While we are praying, He is praying. After we pray and we stop praying, He continues to pray. He ever liveth to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7.25. So that even if we have committed sin, before we pray, while we pray, and our prayers are so weak before God, we can be sure that God hears us for His sake, for Jesus' sake. And it gives us boldness, you say. It gives us courage to come before God in any time, even after great sin, even after we have not prayed for so long. Trusting that God will receive us. Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now I'm preaching that strongly to embolden God's people to come to Him and pour out their hearts before Him. Some think that this doctrine will lead to an antinomian attitude regarding prayer. And that's this. Well, if Jesus prays for me, then I don't need to pray. Well, it might lead to that, but not due to the doctrine of His ascension and intercession, but due to your sin, your laziness, and your faulty logic. That's what it is. The true believer who hears the doctrine of Christ's ascension to intercede for us, is encouraged. He is stirred up. He is emboldened. He is eager to pray. If anything, in thanks. In thanks to God for, for so wondrous a Savior who has ascended for our benefit. And that brings us to the second benefit of the ascension which the Catechism teaches us. The first is that He is an advocate and intercedes for us. The second is that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge. That's the key word, pledge. That He as the head will also take up to Himself us, His members. That word pledge should be familiar to you because it is the same word that the Catechism used in the past Lord's Day about the benefit of His resurrection. You remember, the benefit of His bodily resurrection is that it is a sure pledge of our own bodily resurrection. Now the Catechism uses the same word to say His ascension is a sure pledge of our blessed ascension as well one day. And there's a similarity between the two truths of the benefits of resurrection and ascension, but distinction. It's an additional benefit. We saw last week that the word pledge includes the idea of promise. 
So let's consider promise. First of all, God promises that we will not only rise from the dead, just as Christ rose from the dead, with His glorious body, but more, God promises that we will ascend to heaven. Think about that. Imagine that even. We will bodily ascend to glory. Here's a promise in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. That's the idea of ascension. We will be caught up together with them, that is, those who have died in the Lord, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the promise of God's Word. We will ascend. Sometimes children ask me in catechism, will we fly uh, in heaven? And I say, yes. We will ascend. That's the promise of God's Word. He will take us up, body and soul. Sometimes when contending with the premillennialists who believe in a secret rapture, we say, there's no rapture. And that's true, there's no rapture in the premillennial idea. It's a made-up fiction of the imagination. That doesn't mean that there will be no rapture at all. There will be a public ascension, a lifting up of God's people into the skies to meet the Lord in the air. What a glorious day that will be. That's what ascension is. God promises that to us. Now the catechism uses the word pledge. Because pledge is not only a promise, but the word pledge is an act. It's an action that symbolizes and guarantees the fulfilling of that promise. And I gave the illustration last week of the Pledge of Allegiance, where someone stands up and takes his hand and places it over his heart and looks at the flag and then speaks of his promise to be loyal to a country. And so God pledges to us, not only by promising, but with an act. And the act of God to make His promise sure to us is this. Before the eyes of His disciples, they saw Jesus with His body and soul, His human nature, on that Mount of Olives go upward up into the skies, and they gazed upon Him. They could see Him all the way up until a cloud covered Him from their sight. That, God says, is my pledge to you that you, like Him, will ascend to glory. The Catechism emphasizes the certainty of that pledge by referring to Christ as the head and we as His members, known as the language that He as the head will also take up to Himself us, His members. That's a biblical illustration of Christ being like the head of a human body and we His people in the church as body parts, members. The church is like that human body. And as you know from 1 Corinthians 12, that human body belongs together. The eye may not say to the ear, I have no need of thee. The hand may not say to the foot, I have no need of thee. We need each other. We belong together. We are one body. But now, the most important part of that body 
is the head. And that head is an illustration of Jesus Christ. Our head's in heaven. And you, the body parts, belong with the head. You, the members of the church, must be one with the head. Yes, already now, spiritually you are. But not just your soul, but your body too must be one with that head. Must be with Him. Must be together with Him. His ascension as the head is a pledge that you, His body parts, will, soul and body, be one with Him soon. So sure is this pledge that one of the texts that we read this morning, Ephesians 2 verse 6, speaks of it as though this promise has already been fulfilled. Notice verse 6 of Ephesians 2. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the verb tense? It's not future. It's not this. God's Word here in Ephesians 2 verse 6 does not say He will raise us up together and will make us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is true enough. That is true. But that's not what the text says. The text says, He already raised us up together. He has already made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's the simple past tense in the original. Which means... That when Christ, our head, ascended into heaven, it is as good as done. That's the meaning of Ephesians 2 verse 6. It is as good as done that we His members ascend. It is as sure as if we have already ascended. Because He has our head. Jesus has ascended to be our advocate and intercessor. He has ascended as a pledge of our own personal bodily ascension. And finally, a third benefit that the catechism points to is that He sends His Spirit as an earnest. He sends us His Spirit as an earnest by whose power we seek the things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God not the things on earth. To speak generally first, we should see that the advantage of Christ's ascension is that He pours forth His Holy Spirit. It brings us all kinds of benefits. So many that I don't have time to tell you and explain all of the benefits that Jesus gives to us by that Holy Spirit. No ascension means no Pentecost. No ascension means no Holy Spirit. But the ascension, the fact of His ascension means that He is at God's right hand pouring forth that Spirit. That's Jesus' own words in John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient, meaning it is profitable or advantageous, the word the catechism uses. It is advantageous for you that I go away 
For if I go not away, the, the Comforter will not come unto you. That's the Spirit. But if I depart, I will send Him unto you. Jesus had to ascend in order to pour His Spirit forth. To work that Spirit in His New Testament church particularly so mightily that they come to an even greater and deeper understanding of the Gospel than many of their Old Testament brothers and sisters. Christ had to ascend into heaven to pour forth His Holy Spirit so that the New Testament saints like us can have even greater assurance and comfort regarding the work of Messiah. Christ had to ascend into heaven to pour forth His Holy Spirit so that by that Holy Spirit, the Gospel might be worked not only in the hearts of the Jews, which is where that Gospel was mainly limited to in the Old Testament, and now is poured forth to all the nations, all the world. Thus the ascension of Jesus Christ. And because He has ascended, you see, He is present by His Spirit in all His people. Now think about that in connection with the Lutheran error for a moment. Remember that the Lutherans want to argue that He is present, very really present. One of their um, insistences, one, one of their mantras is that He is really present. His real presence. And they mean by that physical presence. But ponder a moment how His physical presence, if He had remained here, is not advantageous. He said so Himself. Then He would have been only able to be with His disciples in Palestine. And He would have only been able to be in one place at one time. And one Lord's Supper perhaps at one time. We need Him to rise. Jesus Himself says we need Him to ascend. We need Him to depart physically in order that He might send forth His Spirit. And His Spirit works omnipresently with us and in us so that He never leaves us nor forsakes us. That's the benefit of the ascension. The benefit of the ascension is actually His real presence by His Spirit close to us. So that we seek the things which are above, the Catechism says, and not the things on earth. But lastly, the Catechism emphasizes that the Spirit is an earnest. An earnest. Christ ascended into heaven to send His Holy Spirit as an earnest. That is a profound word we end with tonight or this morning. The word earnest literally means a down payment. A deposit. That's the biblical word in Ephesians 1.14 speaking about the Spirit. We read, which is the earnest of our inheritance. The down payment or deposit of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. Children, again, you can understand what an earnest is. 
though it's a word in the Old English, it means down payment or deposit. So that if you were to desire to buy a house or something expensive today, and you wanted to guarantee to the person that you are paying that you were going to pay the full amount soon, the fifty, the four hundred thousand dollars soon, you would give to that person that you are paying a down payment, a deposit. It would be a, a partial sum that would assure that person that you are paying, I'm able to pay the full, and I will pay the full amount. That's what a deposit does. It guarantees that the full amount is coming. Now to us, you see, God gives a deposit. He gives a down payment. Not in the sense that we deserve anything or that He has to pay us for anything. For all of salvation and all of eternal life is freely of grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. But the idea of a deposit is such that the Most High God gives unto us eternal life already now. We don't wait until heaven before we receive the eternal life. We already have eternal life now. The Holy Spirit is that life. The Holy Spirit is sent from the ascended Savior Jesus Christ as a deposit or an earnest. Which is Christ saying, I'm able to give you the fullness of it because you have the foretaste already now. And I guarantee I will give you the fullness of it. Here's a foretaste of it now. When God's people feel the Holy Spirit working in them, that deposit guarantees glory, the fullness of glory soon to be. There's one word. One word that sums up all these benefits. And that's the word assurance. If you struggle with assurance, and I think God's people, it seems, God's people seem to struggle with that more and more in these last days. Perhaps that is the reason, one of the reasons for all the controversy of the past. As God's people struggle with assurance, you need the doctrine of the ascension. The benefit of the ascension can be summed up this way. It's assurance. Do you need the assurance or forgiveness of Christ the righteous being yours? Then look up at the cross, yes, said the resurrection. But look up. Let your heads be lifted up high to the gates already open. The King of glory has entered in. And there He pleads your case. He claims your righteousness not because you are righteous, but because He is righteous. Look up and see Him as your ascended Lord and be assured that for the sake of the Advocate, you are righteous in God's sight. Do you need assurance of your own ascension one day that you with your soul and your body will ascend to glory? Then look up and see your head, your ascended head, to which the body parts will ascend soon and very soon. Do you need further assurance of eternal life? Then remember the Holy Spirit that ascended Lord sends. He works as a deposit to your soul. It gives you eternal life already now. That which will be made full in the end. 
O church of God, be sure, be sure by faith in your salvation, not because you are so worthy, but because He is. And believing in Him, value Him, His ascension, and live for Him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, the blessings of Jesus Christ are so great and so numerous, so deep and so wide, so glorious and so wonderful, that we confess that we have yet to fully comprehend all of them. Even the blessings of the ascension of Jesus Christ, which we often underestimate, are so grand and so many that we have yet to fully understand all of them. We look forward to that day in glory, which we have been assured we will receive one day. For then we will see all those blessings of Christ more clearly, more deeply, and be able to praise Thee for all the gracious benefits perfectly. Yet, O God, we pray that before that time, even now, by the power of Thy Holy Spirit, that Thou would open our eyes of faith to see what Thou hast revealed to us in the Scriptures, so that we believe and so that we are sure, so that we stand in awe of all these benefits and overflow in thanks and praise for our crucified, risen, and ascended Savior. We pray through Him who is our advocate, our intercessor, confident that Thou dost hear us for His sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.